Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, your podcast vessel on this voyage through America's dumbest timeline. I'm Frank Spring, and with me as always is Ellie Jacobs, who is truly a man for all seasons except high summer, with which he is on very bad terms indeed. Welcome, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. If you have time to tweet, you have time to leave us a review, and they really are very helpful. And follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in phlegm. Uh, we're also now on Facebook because we're just that cool and we want to be social media moguls. Uh, we do apologize to those diehard shipmates out there who took us at our word last week that we would be having two episodes. Firstly, clearly haven't been listening carefully to the undertoads of this podcast. And second, we apologize for leading you astray and thinking we'd have that second podcast, which we didn't. Oops, our bad. Also, uh, Frank, I want to take the opportunity to congratulate everybody in the country for surviving seven months to the day since Donald Trump's inauguration. And there's only 41 more to go. We're almost there. And by that, I mean, it feels like we've never been farther. Uh, so we're still planning on a, uh, on a solid interview on North Korea and nukes. That issue has uh, receded from the headlines. It's still important. Uh, that interview has gotten delayed by August schedules and, uh, and recent events. And uh, Receded from the headlines, but not from our impending doom. No, that's exactly right. And speaking of, uh, of recent events uh, and headlines, we're going to be joined in a bit uh, for our interview with Negus Abebe, uh, who will talk to us about, among other things, white supremacy in American security and politics. Uh, Nigist is a co-founder of All in Our Consulting, which is a consulting firm uh, that is devoted to building social impact startups worldwide. She's worked for the Democratic Party of Virginia as an organizer and a regional organizing director for most of 2016. And before that, uh, she served with the U.S. Agency for International Development, that's USAID, in the Office of Transition Initiatives, uh, supporting the growth of peaceful democracies in countries emerging from conflict. In 2013, she co-authored Bidding for Development, examining how cities can benefit from failing the Olympic bid process. And she's a very sharp thinker on, among other things, uh, white nationalism and white supremacy uh, in American politics, especially as a security threat. So uh, we're looking forward to talking talking with her in a little bit. Yeah. Do you know how cities can benefit by failing the Olympic bid? They don't have to host the Olympics. Yes, that seems to be some uh, an emerging strain of thought, uh, <laughs> compelling stuff. So, uh, but before we get into all of this, uh, there are a number of things that we are very much looking forward to not talking about today. Uh, what what are we not talking about? We are not talking about the president's various advisory councils, uh, which have been shut down on the basis that they can't quit because they are fired. Uh, at the uh, at the end of this week. Uh, a number of uh, a number of members of the president's advisory councils on manufacturing and jobs, uh, uh, the various CEOs of various corporations uh, quit because being seen next to the president uh, after his particularly his Tuesday press conference in which he did not condemn uh, white nationalism and white supremacy, but rather seemed to sort of do the opposite, uh, was no longer a good corporate look. Um, And so they were all bailing out and President Trump shut down his own advisory groups because no one wanted to be part of them. There's not much to say about this, except that it is that you, you can't quit because you're fired. No, we quit. No, you were fired is, I mean, is the essence of what this enterprise has turned into. It's just terrific. I can't yeah, and the, you know, the end of last week, also, the president came out and said that he and Melania would not attend the Kennedy, Center's, Kennedy Center honors because uh, the artists would feel uncomfortable. 
So, you know, rather than changing your behavior to, to more to fit better with, you know, normative society, just stop going to things where they won't, they don't like you. That usually works out really well for everybody. Yes. And the Kennedy center sent them a nice note or published a nice note, thanking them for not turning up, which, you know, is the kind of communication that I usually receive from social gatherings of various kinds. We really appreciate you're not coming. Thank you for, for making that decision for us. Uh, and so as someone who's been on the receiving end of a number of those things, I will say that was very gracious of the Kennedy center. So, you know, excellent. Our president is a social pariah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the pariahs. Yeah. Speaking of pariahs, uh, there's been a lot of talk over the last week, particularly, um, following the Tuesday press conference about the discomfort, at least very senior members of the Trump administration have about some of his rhetoric over the last week. Uh, first equivocating on Saturday about, uh, what was happening in Charlottesville and then trying to clean it up and being more pronounced on Monday. And then on Tuesday during a press conference, basically forgetting how English works and going back to equivocating to then actually say nice things about Nazis and neo-Nazis and white supremacists and comparing uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington to folks like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. And if you don't understand why those comparisons don't work, um, repeat third grade. Uh, but in, in terms of this, uh, there were the few names that were obviously um, peaked were folks like uh, Elaine Chow, uh, who um, whose parents are, 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 she's the wife of, she is the transportation secretary and the wife of the Senate majority leader. And uh, she's of Asian descent. And people were questioning how she could stand up there, as Donald Trump said, nice things about white supremacists. At the same time, they were questioning why people like Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin, both of whom are, of, uh, are Jewish, uh, how they could stand by him. And then there were some fantastic video clips and stills that uh, NBC was able to capture of John Kelly looking like he was trying to bore himself a hole through the ground with some kind of ex, like laser vision like Superman had, but really it wasn't working. Um, yeah. So stricken is is the only the beginning of how I would describe how the man looked during uh, Trump's press conference. Yeah, I'd like to think that a uh, retired four star general um, would find a better tailor, uh, but his suit seemed to be hanging off of him pretty poorly. But then I was thinking that maybe he's just lost that much weight in the first two weeks as being chief of staff. Dude's wasting away before our eyes. Yeah, it's really it's not a remarkable. Good, it's not a good look. No, uh, but going back to should should people leave the administration? Um, you know, it really boils down to can you look yourself in the mirror, um, and if so, why? So you know, some people, no one really left, um, which remains kind of surprising to me. Um, I find very little uh, sucker in the leaks to various newspapers and reporters who then post on Twitter that, you know, Gary Cohn is disgusted and, and ashamed, but then he doesn't do anything because he wants to be fed chair or Steve Mnuchin getting a letter from his 85, uh, from his 1985 Yale classmates. And that he responded this morning saying, you don't know the president like I do. He's not a bad guy. Plus we're going to change the world through, you know, tax cuts and regulatory changes. So really the argument boils, boils down to just a few different things. Um, there's the one of uh, that most of most House and Senate Republicans are still sticking to, which as long as we can get our tax cuts and regulatory changes, this is all worthwhile. Um, and then there's the um, aspect of, you know, we need to have each other's backs. We need to stick in this together. I can't leave if, if Secretary Mattis is still there. And then my 
current favorite, uh, which, uh, Frank, I know you have an opinion on, is the quote, and this was from Mike Allen's uh, Axios uh, this morning, quote, you have no idea how much crazy stuff we kill. So the idea that they need to be in office, otherwise they need to remain in office, otherwise really bad stuff will happen. It's a tough spot. I mean, it's it's sort of, I kind of bring this up as a kind of moral philosophical discussion of what do you do First of all, you shouldn't be in this position to begin with, but assuming you are, right? Like you join with maybe the best of intentions, maybe you share some degree of kind of conservative value and conservative ideology with with uh, Donald Trump. You know, why are you know why are you now there as the, as what he is and what his you know and, you know the kind of motives that drive him become increasingly clear. Uh, there is essentially comes down to this. Like, are you, you can say we need to be here. If we're not here, um, something worse will happen. Is it, is that something worse that will happen? Uh, we will adopt a regulatory position that you don't like, or is it, or is it, uh, people are going to get killed. And, and that's, I think that that's kind of what it comes down to a little bit. If you're there because you're concerned that like, we'll do something, we'll do something unbelievably unwise, uh, congratulations, you are assisting nothing. We are everything that we are doing at present that's coming out of this administration is phenomenally unwise. If you are there because the idea is he will replace me with someone who is likely to, who is likely to get a lot of people actually stone cold killed, uh, or some real harm is going to come, uh, people's lives are going to get wrecked and so forth. Uh, you know, that's a pretty fine distinction. Uh, it's getting increasingly hard to take the position that you're not just being complicit with people getting killed and people's lives being wrecked anyway. Uh, but that's what we're down to right now. Uh, it seems to be in the kind of moral and philosophical position, none of which incidentally applies to Steve Bannon, who, reduced, but who uh, in spite of what he'll tell you, was not did not quit. He was fired. Right. Going back to quit versus fired. No, I, I think that the, the point you raise is that I mean, that's really on target. So folks like, you know, Dina Powell or um, General McMaster or General or now General uh, Chief of Staff, retired General Kelly. Um, I think they're very much in the camp that if we're not here, he's just going to go start blowing shit up. Um, but I think some of that argument can also, I mean, Gary Cohn, I was a little flippant saying that he's sticking around just so he can be Fed chair. And while that might be true, uh, there's also something to be said with he may be the one that's preventing some of this, some of the more crazy trade policies uh, that Trump is pushing from taking place and ripping up NAFTA, um, uh, starting a trade war with China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's a possibility that 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 all kind of locks together. Um, and then with junior staff, you know, my guess is that the junior staff, the vast majority are just Trump heads or people who are just so, you know, sycophantic and desperate to get ahead in a career in politics that they don't recognize that having Donald Trump on your resume is not going to help you in the future. Sure. And, and we have an enormous amount of, I have an enormous amount of sympathy, especially for, um, you know, people, there, there are quite a few uh, previous administration holdovers yeah. who are doing important jobs. Uh, and I mean, the government has to function and it's, it's just a tough, it is an incredibly difficult position. Uh, and we're, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am filled with sympathy and I would not condemn someone who's performing an essential service, uh, to, who, who was performing an essential service in the previous administration and sticking around to do it in this one. Uh, but in, with, so basically what we're kind of talking about here are more the kind of recent arrivals and political hires. And, you know, essentially what we are talking about, this is, the, you know, the, the, where the rubber meets the road on my, you know, on my, you know, are you, do you think you're saving lives by being there is, 
it's easy to make that kind of absolute statement, but at what point are you being, you know, but that, that commitment is being sliced thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, because, you know, as we have seen, there has already been, I've read a report to this effect, there's already been as much collateral damage, uh, meaning civilians killed, uh, non-targeted civilians killed in uh, our bombing campaign, in our bombing campaign since Trump took over as there had been in the previous administration. If that was if that was if that was exclusive to Yemen or if that was the entire operation, uh, so the real question that some of these folks who may believe they're saving lives, maybe they are, is all right. But how many? Like whose life are you saving? And if you believe that you're actually doing some good, let's get around to doing some good and not be like, well, you know, I want to be in power so that when the real fuck up comes, I can stop it. But I'm going to allow all of these other fuck ups and monstrosities to occur in the meantime. Um, and it may be that that's the case, and and but what you're talking about now is you know vindication in the history, some degree of vindication in the history books forty years from now. Now, uh, and and I would not, if I were some of these folks, expect anyone to take that to take their uh, you know to to you know treat them as a you know as a hero or even a martyr anytime within their own lifetime. Right. I mean, this kind of comes back to some of our incompetence, uh, malicious scale, right? So. You're by being in office, you're preventing the really malicious from happening. But also, by, while remaining in office, the recognition that no one wants to work in this administration, um, particularly from the national security world, no one wants to work in this administration except people who are just blatantly incompetent and unqualified. People like Sebastian Gorka, who we spent way too much time on this podcast talking about. Uh, I think where I get really, uh, I would, I would argue with that. I would say we don't spend enough. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I mean, it's. I mean, this. I, I, I you know, or we talk about it in the interview with niggas. I'm not going to obsess over, but I will just say, as far as I can tell, this man is literally unemployable by yeah. anyone in the entire world, except apparently the Trump White House. Right. But like, he is good for. He is not. He, he has serves no purpose whatsoever. Like, what will this man do if he's finally turfed out of the White House? Like. I mean, you know, maybe he'll go and like, could, possibly he could open like a t-shirt stand or something. Like I, I, yeah, I but I think actually, I think, but that's, that, you know, that's the work of like someone who has some focus and some entrepreneurial spirit, like which this guy I think does not have. Right. Right. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I think where I, you know, I get caught up really just on, you know, the leaks to the press of, you know, a friend of a friend says Gary Cohn is really unhappy or, um, you know, so-and-so says Elaine Chow uh, regrets uh, stating that she stands by both of her man, men unequivocally, meaning Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I'm just a big believer in that at this point, it, it, where you stand on things is probably pretty clear to most of the population. So there's, I don't see why there's anything wrong for members of the administration to come out very forcefully and say, we disagreed with what the president said and we told him so in a meeting. Yeah, I mean, except that that's a really good way to lose your job. It is, which has been the defining feature of this administration is the people who have taken exception to what uh, anyone who has publicly or privately questioned the judgment of the president or made or and and to be fair, there is an ethic of, you know, staying loyal to your principle if you're in those uh, if you're in those roles. But the defining feature, again, has been anyone who has questioned his judgment, made it look like he is anything other than, you know, the the fount of all wisdom has a tendency to get shit can that includes Steve Bannon. Right. You know, it's just, you know, when The New York Times is saying that Gary Cohn is uh, uh, beyond frustrated and disgusted, uh, or, you know, a source close to Gary Cohn said so. I mean, chances are it was Gary Cohn that told Glenn Thrush that. And if it wasn't Gary Cohn, it was Gary Cohn's wife. I mean, like the, the, these things are sourced pretty tightly. So oh, yeah. I, I guess, I, I guess I'm just at the point where, you know, doing this plausible deniability dance of, 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 um, citations in a, in a press story, like, you know, stand up and say something for real. 
Sure. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't think anybody will hold you at fault for saying something and then saying, but I'm sticking around because people will die or, yeah. you know, yeah. And then you, and then you get, and then you get shit canned and on we go. Like this is, and it's right. just, a, just, it's, it's just a testament to how dysfunctional this thing has gotten. Right. Uh, right. But on the subject of taking strong and reasonable positions or rather not. Oh man, you are getting so good at these transitions. I'm telling you, man, it's practice. It's practice. <laughs> I, you know, you know, and then, you know, if this thing doesn't blow up and we don't make our fortunes, I can, I can just make my, uh, make my living as a freelance segue master. Yeah. We're like 10,000 listeners short of being able to get some of that sweet, sweet, uh, blue apron money. That's exactly right. We're just, we're, you know, we're out here, you know, repping Casper mattresses, you know, and until our eyes fall out and, uh, and, you know, and what, what's the thanks we get for it? Boring the hell out of our five are now five listeners. And, uh, you know, and, and, and to, and for what, for what I ask you, because we need practice at getting these segues in. So Having, having executed and then botched that segue, let, us now, <laughs> let, me now, let me now turn our attention, if I may, to, you know, a man who uh, could make a weekly appearance on this podcast. Uh, if, if we chose, we didn't want to do that to ourselves. We didn't want to do that to our listeners. But every once in a while, uh, the great David Brooks writes something that is so remarkable that it, it, it can't be allowed to simply pass uh, un, uh, unnoticed, unremarked, unchallenged into the leith of forgotten things. And, and so it is with this week in which, you know, as America confronts the obvious and extreme manifestation of our long-term institutional, uh, of our long-term institutionalized uh, uh, white supremacy and our struggle with that institutionalized white supremacy, uh, fortunately, David Brooks is on hand to guide us from uh, to guide us through this, to guide us out of this particular abyss. So, if I may, uh, we're going to have just a, a couple of a couple of samples from this. Uh, his most recent piece on August fifteenth: How to roll back fanaticism. In, of course, the most valuable uh, real estate, uh, journalistic real estate in the country, the New York Times uh, op, uh, opinion page. And and we'll we'll get into the the numbers here from Ellie in a second, but I would just say the first paragraph begins. In a reasonably sensible way, uh, and actually, we, we, you've you've actually got the numbers here. This is fairly typical of David Brooks: is that a lot of his articles begin with a reasonably sound diagnosis of a problem. Like he starts describing what the problem is, and and yeah, sometimes they begin straight off the bat with him taking a, an imaginary high school friend to uh, an att- to a nice sandwich shop, and her like freaking out oh. and having to be carried to a Mexican restaurant. Like sometimes Jesus, they, I forgot about like, that. Yeah, that's that's. I know. I mean, if you start going back into like sometimes they just start off that way, and it's it's that way the whole way through. But a lot of his pieces begin with a fairly sound diagnosis, and then you know, at some stage go a little bit off the rails. Uh, so Ellie, what is the, this? So again, this is the, uh, this is how to roll back fanaticism. What is the count on how to roll back fanaticism and yeah, how so David does before things go? There are, tw- the there are 12 paragraphs in this particular op-ed, which is fairly typical for a, for a Brooks piece. He gets about midway through the seventh before things just really fall apart, which, you know, that's, so that's half of an op-ed where he actually spends the time to diagnose and comment on a problem, which is what a op-ed writer is supposed to do. And, you know, David Brooks, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to say that he's a, he's, I don't want to say that he's not a dumb person, but he's a well-educated person and he, he's been writing articles for quite some time. He's clearly a, a successful, respected uh, journalist. Otherwise he wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a column in the New York times. Um, but 
David's problem is that he may start something off really good, uh, but then it turns into something not so good. Yes. And in this case, it starts about seven and a half paragraphs in. So the first few paragraphs... About halfway through the seventh, I should say. It kind of builds up a little bit. So again, we're going to go through this thing pretty quickly, but you know, he builds up by establishing the theme, right? We're living in, in an age of anxiety. That's not how I think either of us would characterize it, but but it's not an unreasonable... Um, it's not an, it's, it's just to assert the country is being transformed by complex forces like changing demographics and technological disruption. Many people live within a bewildering freedom without institutions to trust, unattached to compelling religion and sources of meaning uncertain about their own lives, right? Right. I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily choose to have expressed it this way, but the idea that there that the rate of change and social change in particular is causing a certain amount of anxiety and dread. He doesn't talk about economic anxiety here, but it's it, and I don't mean it in the kind of pejorative like this is a euphemism for racism. I mean in a genuine sense, like people being afraid for their economic futures. Uh, he doesn't necessarily get into that stuff, but but he's but he's not on terrible ground so far, right? Okay, there are there are changes that are causing disruption and anxiety. Fine, right. and this is also you know kind of par for the course. He writes a column that will address something about this once a month, and for somebody who's the politics, cultural, and social sciences op-ed writer for the New York Times, that makes sense. Yeah. So he carries on, and again, we're going to go through these next ones very quickly, but I, but we want to get to the point. Donald Trump is the perfect snake oil salesman for this moment. Brooks writes. Sure. He lacks inwardness and therefore is terrified by the possibility of anxiety. He has been, anyway, so he goes on to indict Donald Trump, uh, you know, and he, and then, you know, going through these paragraphs as he's beginning to build his case and level the serious indictment, Trump gave people a quick uh, pass out of anxiety. Everything could be blamed on foreigners and the idiotic elites, right? Okay. Again, not a bad encapsulation of a lot of Trump's appeal. Um, then he indicts in the White House. You have pseudo-intellectuals like Steve Bannon. Remember, this was August 15th that he wrote this, so that was still accurate, uh, who think the world is secretly controlled by the deep state. Uh, so he level, continues with his indictment, continues with his indictment about that myopic, uh, the myopic view of, of, you know, the Bannons of the world, uh, you know, references a few of their more absurd uh, conspiracy theories like the the Sandy Hook truthers and the the comet ping pong pizza. Right. Part of the, part um, of the theme here is that uh, it's cheap and easy to uh, to quell this anxiety by finding direct things to blame. Easy, stupid things to blame. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's the deep state or foreigners or the idiotic elite or as Brooks goes on to write, uh, Rich Higgins who blamed it on the ACLU, the Muslim Brotherhood, United Nations, global Marxists or the alt-right who have emerged in support of the Trump administration, I think emerged at this point is, uh, they're not the right word, uh, the alt-right who has established themselves in support of the Trump administration uh, is marked by the same conspir- conspiratorial epis- epistemology um, in which they explain that, uh, um, you know, globalists, Jews, Clintonites, et cetera, et cetera, are, are what is causing the anxiety. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all, you know, he says this not, it's not a large jump, uh, you know, from, uh, those losers, uh, it's, it's, his, it's his from, here to, from here to short leap to those losers in Charlottesville his exact words from here to short leap to those losers in Charlottesville. And he talks about them, you know, leading to, uh, you know, that the alt-right thinks the globalists secretly and malevolently control society. The neo-Nazis go back to the original version of that and believe that a conspiracy of Jewish bankers does. So here he's finished He's finished up his indictment at law. Like the indictment is done. We live in an age of anxiety, again, not necessarily the way I'd characterize it, but not an unreasonable take on kind of what's on, on, uh, on kind of social phenomena of the, the last 35 years. 
Uh, we live in an age of social anxiety. Uh, Trump is, you know, Trump has been able to capitalize on that, and he is surrounded by a bunch of, you know, by a bunch of people who have these really retrograde beliefs, and those retrograde beliefs motivate other people because they explain that anxiety and give them something to blame. Right now, we come to the seventh paragraph. The age of anxiety, he writes, inevitably leads to an age of fanaticism as people seek crude palliatives for the dizziness of freedom. And it's right there in that sentence that this thing falls off, that this thing really begins to fall off the wagon. Okay, the age of anxiety inevitably leads to an age of fanaticism. Again, sure, fine. For the purposes of this article, I, I'm, I'm, I will allow it. As people seek crude palliatives, sure, for the dizziness of freedom. Aha. The problem now, and it's, it's right there. The problem apparently is that people have, all of this freedom has caused people to get unmoored. So, you know, we're going to skip over, we're going to continue with this. This is not actually where the thing goes fully off the rails, but I just want to take a moment and highlight the, highlight this sentence, which indicates that David Brooks has diagnosed the problem as the dizziness of freedom. Apparently this is a new phenomenon. Uh, anyway, so then he goes on and, you know, I'm beginning to think the whole, this is him still, I'm beginning to think the whole depressing spectacle of this moment, the Trump presidency and beyond is caused by a breakdown of intellectual virtue, a breakdown in America's ability to face evidence objectively, to pay due respect to reality, to deal with complex and unpleasant truths. The intellectual virtues may seem elitist, but once a country tolerates dishonesty and curiosity and intellectual laziness, then everything else falls apart. And this is where the thing has genuinely gone off apart. the rails, and not because he is 100% wrong, but rather he has completely lost the context of the totality of American history. When is this, was this golden era when America at large was a bunch of even-handed, you know, thoughtful, intel, you, know, I mean, you know, intellectually rigorous voters uh, who, you know, believe, you know, who never, who would never tolerate this, tolerate dishonesty, incuriosity, or intellectually la or intellectual laziness. This is what we've all, this is what we've been. This is where we came in, man. Yeah. This is America. Yeah. This is America. Like, I mean, I, you know, it's, we, we, you know, I mean, we've been successful in spite of this, not be, you know, in spite of the fact that we have, in, you know, in spite of the fact that we have not had those virtues that he's extolling collectively for most of our history, not because of them. So now we're really going to go off the rails here. The temptation is simply to blast the neo-Nazis, the alt-right, the Trumpkins, and the rest for being bigoted, vicious, and hate-filled. Yes, David, that yes. is the temptation. Yes, it is the temptation. Yes, yes. And some of that is necessary. Also correct. The boundaries of common decency have to be defined. That is okay. Now we're, now we're, we're back on yeah. the rails here. The, the temptation, much like the temptation to eat or breathe, um, mm -hmm. is necessary. Yep. It's one you got to indulge, man. You know, I know, you know, it is one thing to be tempted another to fall, but yeah, I think we can give into that particular temptation. Yeah. I am not anxious about blasting neo-Nazis, the alt-right and Trumpkins for being big, bigoted, vicious, and hate-filled. Yeah. I think we can feel pretty good about that. But here we go. But no, David Brooks has a different solution, a different solution than simply blasting the neo-Nazis, the alt-right and the Trumpkins for being bigoted. Vicious is it to take them out for fancy sandwiches? Uh, that yes, that is exactly it. I took one of them for a fancy sandwich. <laughs> I got in a cab with Tom Friedman and the cabbie and the guy I was taking for a fancy sandwich gave me you know, spelled out a revealed truth to me. Tom, here's, Tom Friedman here's, is driving Uber now as part of his globalist agenda. Oh my God, that would be so good. I, I really, I really want that. Okay, here we go. So we have reached, and listeners, I promise we have we have reached the uh, pretty much the apotheosis of this piece. So we've 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 indicted we've indicted those who need indictment. Uh, you know the you know the, the snake oil salesmen and their racist friends. 
Uh, we have talked about how there is value in blasting neo-Nazis, the alt-right, et cetera. But no, but no. But, but hold on, folks. Put a, just hold put on, a, folks. Just put a pin in that. <laughs> throughout history, the wiser minds have understood that anger and moral posturing are not a good antidote to rage and fanaticism. Competing vitriols only build on each other. So we are not to meet uh, uh, rage and fanaticism with uh, anger and moral posturing. I've exactly one thing uh, to say to that. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That is one wiser mind's view. Uh, why, why, my mind wiser than mine. That's, that's how one wiser mind uh, decided he was going to react to rage and fanaticism. That mm -hmm. uh, was the these anger and moral posturing in which he sadly indulged on that occasion. Uh, so I, no, it turns out the I can't most, help but I can't help but think that here Brooks might be trying to channel a little bit of Jesus and turn the other cheek, which makes no sense in this context. If you're ever writing an article and thinking I'm going to channel Jesus Christ, take a step back, man. It may be uh, maybe going a little far. So the answer turns out, and and here we and, you know, and here, and here we we finally are on the home stretch here. We're about done. The answer it turns out is uh, modesty. The most powerful answer to fanaticism is modesty, uh, and. And, and then here follows a brief pan to the value of recognizing that uh, we don't own a single truth, that no one has, you know, that uh, it, progress is not made by crushing some swarm of malevolent foes. Oh, God, I could have sworn that's how World War II came about. That's how we won World War II, but never mind. Uh, it's made by finding balance between competing truths, between freedom and security, diversity and solidarity, uh, white supremacy and equality. Oh, no, sorry, I just added that last line there. Yep, Made by finding between balance between competing truths. So we bring this, and then he goes on and talks about how great how, much, how great modesty is. And I want to point out, not to play the man instead of the ball, we'll play the ball here, but I want to point out that this was a guy who taught a course on humility at Yale University, the prospectus of which included a very large selection of his own writing. So, and then he, but there's a promise of more to come. Over the next few months, I'm hoping to write several columns on why modesty and moderation are superior to the spiraling purity movements we see today. It seems like a good time for assertive modesty to take a stand. As the country comes once again galvanically to grips with the uh, white supremacy that has characterized so much of our culture and institutions since its inception, David Brooks is out here ready to take a stand for assertive modesty. Friends, this is the very essence of what alt-centrism is. Yeah. That it is, that there is no objective truth. There is no good. There is no essential value that through a process of converse, of polite conversation no, with anyone, no matter how evil or retrograde, uh, that is like that process of polite conversation is the good. Not that we shall reach some collective sense of what's right or what's wrong, but the mere acceptance and tolerance of other ideas, uh, the mere polite conversation, polite process with anyone, regardless of how repulsive, is the is the essence of of good government. That's the point of the polity. That's the, the, the basis of alt-centrism, and we abjure you, uh, in our in our friends and fellow travelers, not to be seduced by this garbage. Yeah. And this is really, I mean, this is Brooks almost at his finest. This is Brooks who used to be a conservative. Now he still sort of claims to be, uh, the, he is laying out the touchstone argument for 
conservatives against a progressive or liberal view that because there's no good and there's no evil and everything is sort of just on the sliding scale, uh, it's a really bad idea to, to, to follow that. He, he, Brooks is actually giving liberalism and progressivism a very bad name here, um, which is one of the reasons I like using the, word, using the term pragmatic because that at least has a rules to the game of balls and strikes. There's, in and of itself, Brooks isn't saying anything that's incorrect here if it wasn't being applied to things like white supremacists and alt-right and neo-Nazis. But the fact that he is applying this concept of modesty as a solution for that um, fanaticism is um, delusional. Yeah, it's absurd on its face. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't fight the degree, you can't fight the certainty of white supremacy with uh, with assertive modesty. I mean, you know, right. there there are some ideas, nor can you fight it with logic and and numbers, which will sure. likely be his next column. Will be his next argument. Yeah, exactly. If only we can. I mean, there are some ideas that belong on the in the dustbin of history, uh, or in the ash heap. I think was, was Trotsky's term. Uh, there are some ideas that belong on the ash heap of history. Uh, I mean, clearly, white supremacy is one. You know, I mean, the, you know, the the the, the essence of the polity has sort of it you know, is based on the idea of an equality of humanity. Uh, the idea that we could recognize, I mean, what he is essentially calling for is a kind of agnosticism about, about basic moral truth. Uh, and that just, uh, there's, that is uh, equivocation on a kind of galactic level. Uh, and it's, I'm honestly sort of stupefied. It is, it is, as you say, peak Brooks. This is, this may be the David Brooks's thing he's ever written. And that includes the time when he decided that what we needed in order to combat Donald Trump was a return to Gerald Ford. Right. Or that everybody should just go get PBJs. Yeah. Yeah. And this comes in the context of, you know, the, what I've taken to calling the Trump triangle, the, the three pillars of his campaign and kind of the Bannon mindset, which is economic populism non-interventionalism and white identity politics. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and those are all, I mean, those, those are, those are all ideas with, uh, you know, long histories in American politics. Uh, you can make an argument about, I mean, non-interventionism obviously is a, it, it, there's at least some intellectual credibility there. It's not necessarily a, a you know, in, it's kind of knee jerk reactionary form. It's not a view that I think Ellie and I would share necessarily. Um, but beyond, but, but the essence of all of that stuff is, um, is a kind of, yeah, is, is a, is a pretty bankrupt series of ideas that honestly, no amount of modesty, uh, any modesty that leads you to think, you know what, actually, we should be taking this shit seriously uh, is, you know, is is incredibly counterproductive and, frankly, ridiculous on its face. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So those were the three things we weren't going to talk about, right? Yes. And I'm glad we didn't talk about them because that would just give us all rage strokes. Uh, we're heading into our interview with uh, Negus Debebe now, and I want to give a little context uh, before we head in. Uh, so... Uh, you know, there's just some. Let's talk a little bit about um, Charlottesville and uh, and Virginian politics. Uh, quick update on some of this stuff. Uh, you know, as we think about Virginia, we think about what happened in Charlottesville. This is something that I, I, I'm not necessarily sure how many of our, our readers know or listeners know this. Uh, I didn't know it uh, until this week. But Virginia has a state law that forbids localities, uh, local authorities, uh, from removing Confederate monuments. It's actually something that has to be done at the state level. Uh, the Charlotte and Charlottesville, uh, they voted to uh, remove the monument, uh, and in voting to remove that monument, the local authority, um, city council, they did that with full knowledge that it would result in a lawsuit. So the idea was this was a this was meant to force uh, to force the issue at the state level, and 
and to force it through the courts and the idea that uh, you know lo- municipalities ought to be allowed to take down their monuments if they see fit. Uh, also, the same local act included $4 million to address uh, racial inequality in the community, which I thought was a, an interesting pairing and, and one that I think is often overlooked when we talk about this stuff that you know, communities of color, especially in the South, may be interested in the removal of Confederate monuments, but they're also interested in the doing of, re- of real good now. Uh, so the removal of these offensive symbols is only part of the story here. And this whole thing has put uh, current GOP uh, gubernatorial candidate uh, for Virginia. Virginia does off cycles, so their uh, their gubernatorial election is this year, 2017. Uh, it's put uh, their gubernatorial candidate, Ed Gillespie, uh, in a pretty tight spot. Uh, so Gillespie uh, is from New Jersey, lives in Northern Virginia. He is an establishment Republican of the first order. Uh, he was once the chair of the RNC. He is the, and, he is the establishment Republican. Yeah, he is the establishment Republican at this point. Lost a race for Senate two, uh, two years ago, right? Yeah, and, and Gillespie got a bad scare in the GOP primary from uh, Corey Stewart, uh, who uh, you know, is, a, is a Virginia Republican, uh, models himself on Trump and is now the self-appointed champion of Confederate monuments. This is the guy who's out here saying things like, well, next the libs are going to want to get rid of the names Robert and Lee. Uh, and what he missed is that we are also coming for the letter E. We are coming for the letter E as well, so watch mm-hmm. your ass. Yeah. Uh, and Gillespie's path to victory probably always involved uh, some of the of Virginia's few genuine independents, uh, and and I say some of the of the few genuine ones because there are a lot of people who will claim to be independents. In fact, for the most part, people who claim independent vote reliably with one party. Uh, but there are some, there are a few of them out there who genuinely will switch parties based on the candidate. Uh, and then, so there are going to be some of those. Gillespie's path was probably some conservative-leaning Dems. Uh, given the way that Virginia has changed over the last uh, 15, actually longer than this, but the last 20 years, an increasingly purple state, uh, for a Republican to win it, and it's a doable proposition for Republicans, it really is, uh, but you know, you need to be able to draw in some of the independents and some conservative-leaning Dems. That's very hard to do when you're also fighting off a rear, fighting a rear guard action, uh, desperately trying not to be drafted as, into being the standard bearer for the darkest motivations of your own base. Uh, so your own base is suspicious of you if you are, you know, if you are the GOP candidate and you're not out here taking the Corey Stewart line about uh, Confederate monuments. The people that you need to persuade are suspicious of you if you are. It's this. This is this puts Gillespie, who was not in a great spot to begin with. Uh, and was was trailing uh, Ralph Northam, the Democrat, in most of the polls before Charlottesville. It puts him in a very, very tight spot. Uh, so I think it's going to be it is going to be a struggle for him to pull this thing out. Yeah, I mean, Virginia is kind of a fascinating spot for politics in general, uh, based on uh, you know, governors are there for one term. Uh, it's very it, it is the purplest of states, I would say. Um, I mean, just look at Eric Cantor is a great example of what Frank was just saying. You're kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't position in a lot of things. If you're a quote unquote, conservative, traditional, you know, bog standard institutionalist Republican. And with that, uh, we'll be right back with our interview. And we're joined now uh, for our interview uh, by uh, Nigis de Bebe, uh, is a, a good friend of ours. Uh, as I mentioned, she is the uh, co-fo- co-founder of All in Our Consulting. Uh, this is a consulting firm that does uh, social media impact startups around the world. She's worked for the Democratic Party of Virginia as an organizer and regional organizer in 2016. She was with USAID before that. Uh, she also co-authored uh, Bidding for Development, uh, which is a book that examines how cities benefit from uh, failing the Olympic bid process, which if you think about it, is quite 
clever because many, many more cities fail in their Olympic bids than win their Olympic bids. It seems obvious, but it didn't occur to me until I heard about this book. Uh, so anyway, uh, Niggas, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So before we get into uh, the light and joyful topic of white supremacy as a security threat in America, uh, I would just like to ask, so you come from uh, the USAID background. Uh, how did you get into politics as a profession? So I was actually in going to school in Chicago when um, Barack Obama was elected president, which is like a pretty formative time to uh, reach adulthood. And I remember when he declared his presidency or his candidacy. And then the next day I was staffing a rally um, in Chicago. I volunteered taking the number six bus up from Hyde Park to the HQ. Mm-hmm. That was just like a sad corner when there were maybe two or three people uh, staffing a desk and dealing and volunteering there um, until I had to do a few other things for school. Um, but my number one regret had always been that I never, uh, that I didn't just like take time off from school to work the 2008 campaign. Uh, when 20, I did get out the vote um, and that was fun, but there's nothing like actually working on a campaign. In 2012, I was working at USAID, you know, and I did what I could to volunteer, um, making a few trips down to Virginia to do get out the vote again. Um, and was really excited to see him re- reelected and to continue to serve as a civil servant in his administration. And then 2016 came around and it was kind of a weird turn of events, but I had quit, started my own company and realized that this was kind of my last chance uh, where I was at a point in my life where I could just kind of throw it all to the wind, pack everything up and go wherever somebody told me to go to and if I wasn't going to get, uh, if I couldn't do it to get President Obama elected the first time, then I could do it to help protect his legacy um, in 2016. And so that kind of my all-in uh, moment. And, you know, part of the work we did in Virginia, we ran up a margin that was the biggest margin in Democrats seen statewide since Obama in 2008. And uh, we had a pretty fantastic team of people who worked for that. Terrific. And I, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to, to dive into this just for our, our listeners is that you know, getting into it, it, looking at campaign politics, if you walk into any campaign office around the, around the country, you will, you will primarily see the field organizers, uh, you know, avert your eyes, uh, you know, don't be shocked by them. They, they really are like they're, they're, they're human. They've just been put through an awful lot. Uh, and they, you know, field organizers traditionally are, you know, are very early career. A lot of them are, are people who've left, a lot of them are, you know, been, people are taking time off from college. They're just, they're, their first job out. Like the way that campaign politics is structured, it can look like it is a, a vocation that if you don't get into it when you're 21 years old and don't know any better, um, you can't get into it at all. And that's, that's just not true. And the, the best, mo- many of the best political professionals I know are people who have come into politics having had a few years doing something else. Uh, so if you feel like you are, uh, <clears throat> and, and those people tend to rise within political organizations very quickly. Uh, so if you feel like, so if you've ever wanted to, or thought about getting into professional politics and thought, you know, I don't want to come in at the entry level because it'll take me forever to get back up to where I am in my career. Otherwise, like it's, there is a very quick path to ascendancy. If you are already a good professional and you join uh, a campaign, you will rise to the top fairly quickly. And in Niggas' case, it's a really good example of that. Um, so I, I find that story very inspirational. Uh, so now, having been inspired, uh, we are now going to be, I think, I hope inspired in a different way, uh, which is uh, horrified and moved to do something, uh, which is a kind of inspiration. So I guess let's talk about, so you've done Virginia politics. Uh, you know, that's, that is a, a focal point for the country right now, uh, based on what happened in Charlottesville last week. 
let us talk a little bit about white nationalism as a security threat. What is happening there? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think this is not a new threat. Uh, there had been coverage, uh, certainly I think as early as 2015, about kind of, uh, I think probably the last peak around Dylan Roof and the um, Charleston Nine, um, that most domestic terror incidents are carried out by white nationalists, white supremacists, white extremists of some sort. Um, there are a few different uh, papers, PolitiFact, New America Foundation, have all kind of covered those different spreads. And your counts may differ based off of like what you're using to define domestic terror or different types of attacks. But um, you know, when we consider national security and the threats, both foreign and domestic, like this is a pretty significant uh, domestic threat to the security of many Americans. Um, and we've been seeing that more and more lately. I think what makes it even more telling at this point is that um, we're also at a height where it's having institutional, the height of institutional manifestations of this. We're seeing the DHS white, uh, white extremist tracking um, offices shut down. We're seeing voting rights being compromised. We're seeing national attempts to suppress voting rights and pursue um, spurious allegations of voter fraud and things like that. And all of those are, are different smaller manifestations of, uh, not smaller, but those are different manifestations of white supremacy and white nationalist um, goals to change the face of this nation. Um, the other part is also this chest-thumping foreign policy. Like when our foreign policy, um, and I think there's a pretty bipartisan consensus um, among national security experts that we are currently nationally being led by people who are not experts in national security and who frequently have motivations that are more about kind of chest-thumping nationalist pride than they are about um, our best interests as a nation. And this, and let's talk a little bit about, I want to come back to some of the points about uh, domestic, the, dom- the domestic institutional connection between uh, the kind of obviously neo-Nazi protest that we saw in Charlottesville uh, and, and uh, voter fraud and some of the other stuff. That's because I think this is a really important nexus, but I want to stay with foreign policy a little bit. Uh, let's, can we draw that connection a little bit more, a, a little bit more directly? This chest thumping foreign policy is connected to uh, white supremacy because one is connected to white supremacy on a couple of different angles, but, but I want to tease that out a little bit more. Uh, what is it, what is it about the institutionalization of white supremacy in by, in the body, in, in embodied by members of this administration that, uh, or the beliefs of members of this administration that leads to this kind of bellicosity in foreign policy? Yeah. I mean, I think probably sub Gorka is one of the best examples of this, this like, <laughs> <laughs> amen, utterly unqualified. Oh, Sam Gorka. I just, I, I feel like, it, did you ever, did you all, um, forgive, forgive me everyone, but did you all watch Pee Wee's Playhouse in the 1980s? Where there's like a secret word, and whenever when anyone said the secret word, everyone in the audience just went crazy. So the secret word would be like postal, and then someone would say the word postal, and there would just be this noise, and everyone would go insane. That I I am that for Seb Gorka. Anytime that guy comes up, I just want to go like Gorka. Yeah, speaking speaking of Gorka, this is this is fantastic. As as you were just introducing this, uh, I was flipping through Twitter, and this article from the L.A. Times in May. From May 1st, actually an Associated Press article, Trump advisor Sebastian Gorka to leave the White House is now making the rounds uh, in the last like five minutes and people are ecstatic but are not looking at the date, which, you know, is peak Twitter. Yeah. So 
as far as we know, at 1121, yeah. Sunday, August 20th, Seb Gorka, um, you know, people can, the talking chair is yelling in the background. Um, he's still working there, doing something. We, he's there. We don't know that he works, but he's there. He's yeah. <laughs> like, no one else will take. He's otherwise unemployable except by the White House of the, uh, you know, the free, the leadership of the free world. Sorry, please continue. Yeah. So yeah. Gorka, Gorka is very much the smoking gun on this. Please continue. When we have our foreign policy decided by bigotry and hatred, we are not as rational and calculated as we should be. And that means we prioritize different things and also that we start paying less attention to other threats. And we, I think, um, are seeing people who over-prioritize their worldview and are also, more critically, not open to any evidence base that will push them back and will force them and, and will help them make better, stronger decisions to keep all of us safe. And we are as a country starting to see facts become less and less important, which is even more relevant in places like foreign policy where you're constantly dealing with complex sets of facts and having to weight all kinds of different risks in order to make choices that are frequently the choice between bad and less bad. And that I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think that really encapsulates one of the ways, and I think we've talked about it on this podcast before, one of the ways that this administration has struggled uh, in foreign policy is there seems to be a, and there seems to be a, a portion of this administration, and, and I think Gorka is one of the best, I mean, I, <laughs> again, oh my God, yes, we are still, Sebastian Gorka, again, still employed by the White House, is probably the best example of, of this. It doesn't seem to understand that they're most I would argue most for serious foreign policy decisions are a choice between bad and less bad, right? Like it, the world is a big place. America's capacity to, to do, to affect change in a short time frame is quite limited. It's a, it's ability to affect change over the long term is enormous, but our ability to do anything about an instant crisis is actually quite limited. And they just don't seem to be able to get their heads around that. Like they're like, we're like, we can't just make people do what we want them to right now. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, I think this they're perhaps not as good as playing the long game here and expect everything to be done within a media cycle. Sure. <laughs> Maybe that's that's a little harsh, but No, I mean I, I that doesn't sound harsh to me. I mean I think, you know, you've got people like Gorka. I remember when the when Trump was elected and, you know, I mean, I guess Gorka goes around and gives talks to like, I mean, they're like, or we used to, I don't know, he may still do it. They're like rotary clubs or some shit. Like, you know, I mean, the kind of people who would pay to listen to Sebastian Gorka or even would do it for free. Um, and, you know, he would give these, he was giving this presentation about how what Trump's election means is that, you know, he used to like his presentation had a picture, his like slide deck had a picture of a supposedly recently killed, um, uh, you know, violent extremist in Yemen or somewhere, a victim of a drone strike, killed in a drone strike. And he said, what this means is that we can win again. And, you know, it's sort of like the entire assumption here being like the reason that we weren't winning before is that the Obama administration for some reason just didn't feel, didn't want to, didn't choose to win. That We've always had this capability, but we just weren't electing to use it. Uh, and that A flies in the face of fact and is, is B, I think, revelatory further to your point of a, of a specific worldview that, that is probably grounded in the idea that there is some kind of inherent superiority about America, about um, about an America that is constituted the way that the sub is the world would like for it to be. Yeah, and uh, I think that's part of this whole thing around like the, the domestic threat is like 
I, so I prefer using the term white nationalist for the purposes of this um, conversation because mm. I think it speaks to the political ambitions to reshape mm. the face of an, our, the way our government works and the, um, the way America is. Um, and I think that is the part that in terms of being a part of a progressive national security um, front is that uh, we have to acknowledge whether it's on the political front that this type of loud vocal racism is fueling people who have uh, regressive foreign policy ideas and um, or it's in the institutions themselves that we are seeing people who have these ideas have push forward policies that progressive national security experts and increasingly most national security experts believe are making us unsafe. And I think whether you're looking at it purely on the the political strength of this rhetoric and how it continues to elect people who, um, again, are counter to the progressive national security ideals, um, or it's that the policies they manifest are um, fundamentally undoing the work that progressive national security experts have advanced over the last few years. Well, I think some of the problem runs down to what we were just talking about, you know, the, this idea that, that Frank raised that um, in a lot of people's mindset, we were choosing to not win when that's really not how national security or foreign policy work. And as Frank also rightly pointed out, it's usually the choice between bad and worse. And the trouble is, is that it's very easy for people to understand good and bad, evil and good, uh, winning and losing. But when you start talking about game theory and you start talking about non-zero-sum solutions and you start talking about um, multilateral solutions and, you know, using the entire toolbox, that's where people get lost. And I think if we learned anything from this past election, um, and indeed, I think some of the reaction to um, uh, Obama's presidency as a whole, and certainly, interestingly, some aspects of the Bush administration, um, once they realized that, you know, the simple isn't the, the simple is the enemy of the good, um, that the country is still struggling to figure out what exactly all that means. You know, Hillary ran on this, ran a campaign that was very straightforward of, I want to use all the tools in the toolbox and most other, and a large chunk of the population, you know, upwards of 47% of it didn't understand that there was a toolbox. So I guess the, the, the question, I, I know the, the three of us struggle with this, as does the Truman Project as a whole, as does Democratic politicians as a whole, that they struggle with is how do you make that connection between the Seb Gorka, a guy who willingly has a goatee and drives a Mustang with a vanity plate, when he throws up posters and says, this is why we're now winning, how do you make the connection to that audience whose sons and daughters are probably more likely to, have been, to serve in the military than those who live in New York or Los Angeles? And make the connection to actually when you use all the tools in the toolbox, it's good for everybody, even if it doesn't look great. I mean, yeah, I think that has been, (laughs) I I, I have nothing to say, but yes, it's been very hard for us to figure out how to uh, compellingly communicate about the complexity, like all of the things it takes to keep us safe. Um, And part of it is that like, one, the military is like orders of magnitude larger than every other tool we have. And you're way more likely to know of a veteran than you are to know of a foreign service diplomat. Right. Yeah. I mean, and just let's, before we, let's, uh, so, I mean, as we've said, like there are so much of our foreign policy choices. And it was actually niggas to introduce the the idea that there was a choice between uh, bad and worse. Uh, I was just piggybacking off, off of what she had said. 
Uh, and so much of foreign policy is that way. But speaking of bad and and worse, uh, <clears throat> let's go back to the domestic front here a little bit and talk about I, you brought up you brought up the so-called voter fraud. And I want to stick I want to get into that because I see that as being a very key domestic part of this institutional white nationalist agenda. Uh, and let's so let, let's let us get into this here a little bit. Uh, can you talk to us about voter fraud and how that fits into the white nationalist uh, institutionalized agenda? Yeah, so I think it's important to recognize that this is hardly a novel moment or exercise in American history. The suppression of the vote has been very active ever since the end of the Civil War, and it is part of what's fueled the Civil Rights Movement was fighting for that. And um, arguably the Voting Rights Act, which might be, I would put up there in a like, if there was a Mountain Rushmore of bipartisan legislation in the course of American history, I would include the original Voting Rights Act um, on that. But um, basically people have always used technicalities to try to limit who could vote in order to ensure that their beliefs win. And this includes gerrymandering today. I mean, some of the worst gerrymandered states are also led by Democrats. Let's be real. Um, but when it comes to voter fraud, this is something that's regularly used to like over purge voter rolls and deny people their registration in such a way that they usually don't find out until they actually show up to go vote. Um, it's used in other ways to, um, and that can be things where people use very aggressive algorithms. Like if you have the same name as a felon, um, you get purged. And so if there's one felon named John Smith, then like all the John Smiths in a state might have their voting rights, uh, revoked and never hear about it. And so voter fraud is used to fuel things like voter ID, um, which in, was a huge player in Wisconsin last year. I think there were something like 200,000 disenfranchised voters, which is um, much larger than the gap between Clinton and Trump. Yeah, it was almost like um, three times the gap between Clinton and Trump, if my, if my memory on the count serves. It's a huge yeah, yeah, it's a huge number. And a lot of, I mean, Ari Berman is a fantastic reporter, um, and he wrote the book, Give Us the Ballot, and has continued to follow the, like day-to-day the, the challenges to getting the vote. And he wrote some fantastic pieces of people who spent months trying to get photo ID in Wisconsin and were traveling to three or four different states trying to get paperwork from various points in their lives and still not getting it. And the state actually, I think, uh, did not comply with multiple court orders to expedite the process for obtaining voter ID. Um, and so we've seen it. It was used in 2016. And now we have this um, bizarre voter fraud commission um, being led by a president who won. <laughs> like, it's very odd to see somebody who's so aggressive about talking about his victories, um, apparently convinced that there was excessive voter fraud and that we must investigate it. And um, I am certainly pleased to see so many of the secretaries of state say absolutely not. One, because they clearly have no secure way to collect all of that information. And two, I am not confident that they have any plans to use voter, the not publicly available voter information in a way that is uh, intent on protecting our rights as Americans. Um, But limiting who gets to vote is just one way that uh, people have constantly used um, found ways to legally enforce um, racist beliefs. Sure. And this, uh, that's, a, that's extremely well expressed. And 
and it, I mean, I would just sort of say there's a there's a broad theme behind the voter fraud and the voter fraud myth. Like it's, I mean, there, there's quite a bit of data on the on sort of two very contradictory things. First, that a lot of Republican voters. Uh, believe that there is voter fraud on a mass scale that occurs regularly election by election. Right? Like that's, and this, I, and I suspect the only possible explanation for this in any meaningful way is that, is that Fox News continues to just like churn out these fault, these, you know, sort of process stories of, uh, about potential voter fraud, voter fraud investigations. Like, uh, I mean, I can't think of where anyone else would get this mass delusion because there have been media and academic studies on voter fraud over the, or on, on the potentiality of voter fraud over the years that have, that have uncovered nationwide over decades, a number of deliberate attempts to vote under someone else's name that don't, um, that you, you, you could count on, you could count on all on your digits and not reach both thumbs. Like this is just not, it's just not a thing that happens. Voter fraud, they go after voter fraud in like the way that's actually least effective for changing the outcome of an election. Like, I don't know how many of us have watched The Good Wife, but there they have examples in this fictitious TV story um, about people where you like bring in fake ballots and bring in boxes and boxes of fake ballots. And it's like actually really complicated to figure out how to commit actual voter fraud in a way that will actually determine the outcome of an election. Um, which is like you have to provide enough ballots pro a candidate that you shift like by a significant percentage, which is usually more than you can conceivably do by having like one person vote more than once. Like you, and and so this idea that like voter fraud is happening like by single individuals showing up and voting more than once is like literally is just so insignificant. One happens so infrequently, and in part because like if you really wanted to commit voter fraud, this is like literally the stupidest way to go about it. The worst possible way to commit voter fraud. I, it's like not at all. And again, I, if you're really concerned about how this happens, I recommend watching the good wife. I don't remember what season it was, but um, Alicia's husband, ex-husband, I don't even remember, um, is part of an actual ballot stuffing scheme. And it is, it, it takes a lot more than just one person. My favorite example of this uh, was uh, a few years ago, the then uh, Secretary of State of my glorious home state, New Mexico, the land of enchantment, uh, was then uh, a Republican named Diana Duran. <clears throat> and she'd been you know, recently elected, and her whole thing was she was going to roust out, uh, this is 2010, shortly after election 2010, she was going to roust out those voter frauds, you know, those vote fraudsters once and for all, right? Like we were going to find them, you know, we were going to track them down. We were going to hang them and flog them. Uh, did a complete, uh, you know, top to bottom audit of the New Mexico voter roll and, and certainly contrived to potentially uh, disenfranchise a large number of people uh, via uh, some of the mechanisms that we've talked about, uh, you know, aggressive purging and so forth. Turned up one case of actual voter fraud of someone being registered uh, fraudulently. And that was a, a Republican activist who had registered his dog by way of demonstrating how easy it is to commit voter fraud. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, job done, voter fraud exposed. Uh, the vote is safe for everyone. And and I would just, you know, I, I would sort of caution anyone uh, on the voter fraud issue. The, be suspicious of any, any, any any uh, voter registration, any enfranchise-related uh, policy push that comes from the premise that the wrong people are voting, the wrong sort of people are being allowed to vote. If that's the core of what is driving whatever policy is being proposed, uh, 
that it, it, the math on it needs to be checked very, very carefully because there's probably that, that there's probably a darker agenda at work um, than is than is being given license. And we're certainly seeing that with what Chris Kobach, the former Kansas Secretary of State, is running for for Donald Trump right now. It you know it seems to me that this is having beaten uh, the so-called Obama uh, coalition. Uh, uh, which you know, a large part of which are communities of color that are particularly vulnerable uh, to you know uh, to aggressive purging and some of the other you know voter suppression tactics. Uh, having beaten them on what effectively amounts almost to a technicality, although that's that's a, a little bit of a reductive way of expressing it. But having beaten it on pretty close to technicality, they are now going to attempt to legislate it out of existence. Exactly. Yeah, I, you know, I th- I think in general, anytime that any regulation, lawmaker, leader, community leader, anything is doing anything to make voting more difficult for anyone is being done from a malicious perspective. Voting should be the easy, voting should be easier than buying Starbucks. Yes, agreed. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, um, why the security, the national security uh, professional class needs to get informed about the threat that uh, white nationalism plays to American security. Yeah, so, excuse me. Um, I think, so let me put it like this. If somebody rolled up into the national security community talking about how they were super excited to advocate for the Iran deal, like it was still 2014 and the deal hadn't been signed, um, we would all, you know, take a moment. Um, and part of being a national security professional is constantly being up to date on what's currently happening and what currently needs to be said. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're all running around trying to talk about that. Like I try to stay up to date on what's happening with Israel, but if Ellie needed to, like, I wouldn't put myself in front of Ellie, um, to talk about Israeli policy. I would, you know, while I'm here at this family reunion, maybe bring it up if somebody in my family said something that was factually incorrect or was curious about it. I would say a few words being slightly more informed because I know Ellie. Um, I would, I would say a few words and make sure that they were educated about whatever it is that's happening. And so I think as a class, um, we are all constantly staying up to date because national security threats are constantly changing. And we're all, um, you know, times there's that Ukraine expert who's been an expert all their lives and maybe spends a decade kind of sitting on the back burner. And then all of a sudden, like, Russia goes after Crimea. And everybody needs your expertise and everybody's trying to catch up. I'm like, wait a second. I know there's a lot of history about Ukraine and Russia. And I need to get up to date on what these issues are. If not so that I can be the loudest voice on it, at least so that if I'm somewhere... I can call bullshit on someone who's peddling false facts. And I think we have to tackle the white nationalist threat with that same professionalism that we bring to all of these other issues. I think the other part of this is um, the same way when progressive national security experts went after military sexual assault or tried to start advocating for PTSD, um, better support, for veterans with PTSD, like there are certain times when you're in the room and there are certain people who, by virtue of their experiences, um, get primacy. Like we all work with a lot of veterans and we know that if you haven't served and if you're not a veteran, there are just certain things that you don't get to comment on 
are certain things that you need to be careful about how you talk about them because you are with people who have had deep, deep connections and intense personal experiences that we must try to understand, but we also know that we can't actually understand. And I think that is also relevant when it comes to talking about race and white nationalists. Like people of color in this country have had really intense experiences with white nationalism in a way that white people have not. And as much as you are an ally and trying to get educated and trying to be there, uh, there needs to be a certain amount of respect for the fact that some people will have experiences that all of us will try to understand and none of us will be able to understand fully. I think the, that's the challenge for a lot of, I think the, the, I think the challenge that we're seeing with this, with this community of again, national security folks. Uh, and, and, and I would actually extend this to kind of progressives and liberals more broadly, white liberals more broadly is <clears throat> because we are, and I very much include myself in this, uh, because we are just le- less attuned to uh, white nationalism because our experiences are less profound, less memorable, right? I mean, you know, this, this white nationalism, uh, passively we passively benefit from 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 it have uh you know it's the the way that it's institutionally structured at you know at 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 worst uh well sort of morally at at best it does us uh it does us no harm and morally at worst we actually passively benefit from it uh we're just not as aware of it and and when we become aware of it there's a tendency for like as we did with charlottesville like holy holy shit there's you know clansmen and you know and goddamn nazis out in the streets uh, when when something like this become when it becomes apparent that like this is not just a few tiny like there's not just a handful of like fringe assholes like there's a real thing happening here uh, there's a tendency to treat it like an issue that's just been discovered and now we all need to swing in behind and like you know and and you know and I like the idea that you know the idea that this is a new this is a new phenomenon that suddenly like a whole bunch of people can become expert in and you know and can and can tackle together and and just to understand that. It seems to me the, the the point here, and I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, is that white nationalism is, as a security threat and as a kind of threat to the fabric of America, is an area that is is well studied. Combating it, there are already efforts to combat it. Uh, these are primarily originating out of communities of color, not exclusively, but primarily for understandable reasons. Uh, and that the expertise that has already been developed in this area. Um, should be respected in the same way that the expertise that went into uh, the development of the Iran deal should be should be respected. So you can't just turn up in 2016 and say, "I think Iran. I think we. It's very important that we have a nuclear deal with Iran." And I, you know, I want to become, you know, I, you know, it's time for us to all swing in behind this. There already is a nuclear deal with Iran. It already happens. Like you need to be respect, be aware of, and be respectful of the people who've already done the done the hard work to get their heads around this issue and do something about it. Is that a fair characterization of, 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 of the, of, uh, of why, uh, you know, progressives, liberals, maybe especially around the NatSec space can be, uh, can be a little bit myopic on this. Yeah. I think the other part that goes with it is like, we think that it's, we all like know it, that in a way that like the Iran deal, it's, you know, we're all used to having country-specific, issue-specific experts on things like nuclear non-proliferation and Iran and international negotiations. We're not as used to the fact that, like, it's not enough to just be like, ooh, Nazis, that there's actually, like, lots of expertise that goes into how not to be racist. 
Um, and it, there's lots of expertise that has been going into like how to counteract hate groups in America. And though there's some, um, I think, crossover between people who understand countering violent extremism overseas and see that as like, uh, see the domestic fight as countering violent extremism at home. Um, I think we sometimes think that it's enough to be like, I'm against Nazis and I'm here to show up for the fight and feel like we, um, because we've shown up and we've always not been racist that like now everyone should be excited that we're, that we're here too. And, and I think it's important to recognize that like, uh, that's not always exciting to people that somebody has in 2016 or 2017 finally decided to show up in some way that it's actually in some ways can be a little bit disheartening and, de- and depressing for people who have lived these experiences all their lives, who have been fighting and dedicating like non-trivial portions of either their personal lives or their careers to these fights to have somebody like um, show up at this point in time as if it's like 2011 before Trayvon Martin was killed. Like there's just been a lot that has happened um, and it is not enough to be against Nazis. Like at this point you have to have, um, you have to be informed and educating yourself and, and humble in a way that one of the best pieces of advice somebody once gave me about just like general life advice that I think is relevant for business life, personal life, um, is the first thing when you have what you think is the next big idea, the first thing to ask yourself is who's done it already. It's 2017 and there are not a lot of new ideas left. And there are a lot of people who have exciting thoughts too. And the question should be, you know, who's had this idea already? If it hasn't been had, why hasn't it happened yet? Um, because part, you know, all of us have worked in varying ways with bureaucracies and, um, new movements. And sometimes there's very good reasons about um, obstacles and challenges that are why new ideas aren't, aren't happening or haven't succeeded yet. And so I think, um, combating white nationalism is just another place to ask yourself, like, who's had this idea already? If it hasn't happened yet, why hasn't it happened yet? Um, kind of make sure you're amplifying, like, good things that are already happening and innovating and creating new things where they're needed, not um, duplicating other efforts because you didn't know about them. So let's talk about that. That's a good assessment of how, of how people who want to be helpful and supportive and good allies uh, can, can be kind of, you know, the, the ways that we can be, uh, that we can be not smart about doing that, uh, which is to assume that this is the first time anyone's ever thought of the idea of resisting Nazis. Uh, let's, let's, but I, so I want to talk about how can, how can we be smart about this, uh, specifically, and then we'll move into the, into the closing lightning round. So how um, do we be yeah, smart as so <laughs> the first thing I would say is like, uh, frankly, Google it, like, and give yourself time. Like, don't think that just because this is the moment that you're feeling galvanized to action, it's like, give yourself time to like get immersed in it and, and hear other people's experiences um, and uh, become more fluent in it. And um, to that end, I highly recommend following uh, Brittany Packnett on Twitter. She is one, she shares tons of great content. She retweets a lot of great activists who frequently will put together in a string of four or five tweets. What I think is like really, um, some really 
helpful and eloquent context for um, people who care about combating white nationalism, um, whether it's things like uh, she recently retweeted some of the polling. Um, with uh, She also retweeted uh, somebody on um, the difference between fighting hate and fighting racist institutions, and that it's not just about the feelings, it's about uh, the policies and actions that come out of those feelings. Um, and so there's just a lot of people out here talking really eloquently and explaining a lot um, in a way that for some people is like a firm, you know, for me, a lot of time I read it and one, I learn things, but also I figure out how to be uh, more eloquent in speaking about those things. Or I feel a great sense of comfort because I see somebody articulating something that has just been a nebulous feeling for me. And somebody just gave it like a great set of words and ways and something that I can share uh, as part of the conversation. So follow people on Twitter. There's like a really wonderfully active community of people who are constantly talking about these issues. Um, I would also, one of the things that I've really been trying to pursue is um, I've tried to put a lot of emphasis on reading memoirs from people who are not like me. Um, I read Janet Mock's two memoirs um, intentionally because I want to be a better ally for trans people. And I am woefully uneducated on trans issues and things like that. So I spent a lot of time this year reading books and pursuing podcasts that talk about um, the experiences that um, trans people have and what it's like to be trans, not because I want to go running around shouting out and like leading anything there, but it has helped me in some small one-on-one conversations where somebody said something inappropriate and I've been able to say like, Hey, actually it's, you know, blah, 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 or, you know, you shouldn't use, uh, you know, that's, Basically, the T word is to trans people as the N word is to black people. And, you know, you shouldn't say that outside of, you shouldn't say that again. Um, and so pursue, like, it's not hard to find books. I will also give um, a wonderful shout out to Frank, your wife, <laughs> for starting Duende District and um, putting all of these great books from people of color and other marginalized voices into a bookstore that makes it even more accessible to people to kind of wander around and find the stories of people not like you. And I think, again, sometimes we think that we um, are really familiar because we are in the middle of diverse friend groups and um, we know a lot of people and we're trying to stay informed. But, um, you know, there's a lot of personal experiences that you might never talk about with your friends or coworkers that when somebody shares them in a memoir, like can be really eye-opening and um, just it's a good way to learn without also expecting the people of color in your life to be educating you. Excellent. So a lot of this stuff, I think, and this is really important that, you know, there's a, a desire when you see something as outrageous as Charlottesville to, to become immediately active. And that's a, that's a good impulse that I think comes from a good place. Uh, but I mean, I, to sort of what I take away from, from this is uh, that action uh, loses something. It loses some authenticity if you're not also coupling it with the important work of becoming more educated on the experiences that other communities have dealt with, that have sort of been been that that are you know older and deeper and much more powerful, uh, that have been part of the the struggle against kind of white against the white against white nationalists and and you know go back a, a very very long way indeed. Um, so the education piece it can seem a little bit. I think a little bit passive when people want to find something to do to get out into the streets, but, but that's just as important because that's what gives credibility and authenticity to your activism. Uh, that's, that's kind of, is that a fair characterization of that? 
Yeah, yeah, I think exactly. And then I think too, like you find the more you start just kind of following and staying in tune with people, you find more and more outlets for um, like direct action, if that's what you're concerned about. But I think also a lot of people um, are looking for ways to like just be better in their day-to-day lives. And that's actually, you know, I would, I would put forth that like there will always be kind of protests in March and like, they're not hard to find and to show up to, but it is, it can be incredibly hard to have, to seize a window of opportunity in a conversation with a family member or a friend. And so like, Whoa, you know, that's not really okay. And here's why. Um, and I think that's the part that, uh, like taking the time to educate and, and learn is really important for that is such a wonderful characterization that that it's it's that it, being better in day to day life is an essential part of the challenge, and it's it's harder than finding a, a counter protest or a protest and going to that. Um, with that, if you don't mind, I'd like to, to leave that there and uh, and dive into uh, our closing uh, lightning round, uh, for which I turn it over to Ella Jacobs. Yeah, uh, this has been fantastic, and um, we like to end these things with just kind of a quick four really super fast questions um, that hopefully you could, can be answered very, very rapidly. So the first one, uh, what's the best book, TV show, movie you've read or seen lately? It can be one of each or just one. So I'm going to be, I'm going to cheat a little and say two books. Uh, um, book of Phoenix by Nnedi Okorafor. And I'm currently, I'm not even done yet, but I already know that I love it, which is the third book in N.K. Jemison's um, Broken Earth series, The Stone Sky, which came out on Tuesday, and I've just been so excited to finally get to read it. But All right. yeah, those two. Cool. Um, favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, just a really good cold brew with like my bougie glass bottle heavy cream. <laughs> All right. Strong, uh, very strong. Slightly, uh, <laughs> slightly more serious. Um, in the Trump era, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's one organization you're supporting and why? Oh, I feel like I should, this is weirdly harder than I was anticipating it, but um, <laughs> I would say, uh, and it's funny because literally every time I listen to your podcast, I hear these and I think of my own answers to the questions every time you ask them of a guest. And here I am and I am caught unaware by a question that I have answered multiple times in my head. Um, I Welcome to the I hot see- seat. <laughs> I would honestly say uh, your local politicians. I um, really believe that we need to be focusing on electing people and there's nothing like going out and knocking on doors or donating a few dollars to somebody who the the smaller the race, the the more of a difference each one of those will make. That's a fantastic um, suggestion. And the first time we've heard that one, so that's terrific. Yeah. We've been at this for months and finally someone's willing to stand up for democracy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is taking ship we're slowly the, figuring it out <laughs> the other group that i would say is also actually the advancement project which does a lot on um like voter access and and um different advocacy for immigration immigrants as well i think that's another good one in the trump era Where and with the caveat that uh, because of your professional obligations, uh, sometimes you're not especially visible necessarily um, on you know on online. But um, you know when when you are and and choose to be, where can people find you if they want to follow your your thoughts? Uh, I am Nigist on Twitter. Shockingly, it was still available when I signed up. 
I am that on Instagram and literally everything. So I'm pretty easy to find. If you Google me, I'm, I think I'm still the only thing that shows up for about six or seven pages. Excellent. You are extremely identifiable. Terrific. Um, yeah. <laughs> very good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is, this has been a terrific conversation. Uh, good luck in, uh, in your present, in your present endeavor. Uh, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you guys for having me and thank you guys for covering a tough topic on a tough week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nigist, for the uh, fantastic interview. We'll definitely have to have you back on to talk more of all of that, really. Uh, obviously, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to us. Follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in Psy. Check us out on Facebook as well. Uh, and check us out later this week. We hope for another, we're not making any promises this time, uh, another episode where, we're, where we will talk Korea at greater length. Uh, we know we skipped Steve Bannon uh, more or less throughout this episode. Um, there's a good reason for that. We don't want to talk about Steve Bannon. Um, but with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week to Boston. Do not, do not play the Dropkick Murphy song over this. Uh, we take ship this week to Boston, where it turns out that uh, Boston Garden, TD Garden, as it's uh, known with its sponsorship, uh, the arena uh, that hosts uh, the Bruins, among other teams, uh, is they're in a bit of a spot of bother. Uh, it turns out that uh, part of the statutes allowing for the garden's construction with taxpayer assistance uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, part of that deal was a requirement that the garden host three fundraisers a year to benefit uh, community recreation centers. Uh, which it has not done for the last 22 years. Uh, this fact was discovered by a group of teen organizers who were attempting to fund a youth hockey rink, and TD offered them, being informed that they were 22 years behind on the deal, uh, TD offered them a settlement of a little better than a million and a half dollars, which would come out to uh, $22,000 per fundraiser. Now, that seems a little low for a full-scale fundraiser at a massive arena, uh, like the Garden, and the teen organizers thought so too. Uh, their calculation is closer to $14 million, uh, and we hope they get it. And also, we have an idea. TD Garden has shown itself unwilling or unable to honor its fundraising commitment, and we can't risk another 22 years of that sort of thing. So Ellie and I are heading to Boston to do 66 fundraisers on 66 consecutive nights and get this thing taken care of directly. That's right, we're going to do two months of solid fundraising events in which nothing can possibly go wrong. I don't know what we're raising money for. Uh, if you've got ideas, send it our way. We are diving headfirst into the event horizon of the black hole of fundraising. Friends, we take ship now for Boston. Take care, everybody.